children who are with us this morning, you're welcome to be dismissed now for your children's church if you would like. We're going to be having communion this morning, but we're going to do so at the end of our service this morning. And I, I wish you a, a, a happy new year to all of you. It's the year of our Lord, 2023. Hard to believe that that much time has passed. I'm going to begin with a, a funny story. There was a small southern town, and in this, mother, this small town they had a nativity scene, and they had put a great deal of thought and effort into creating it. But there was one feature of this nativity scene that seemed kind of strange. That was that the three wise men were all wearing firemen helmets. They thought, that's rather strange. And to totally unable to come up with any reason or explanation, the man who wrote this stopped at a quick stop, um, like a 7-Eleven at the edge of town, and asked the lady behind the counter about the helmets. And she exploded into a rage and started yelling at me. He said, You Yankees never do read the Bible. Well, I assured her that I did, but simply couldn't recall anything about firemen in the Bible. She jerked her Bible from behind the counter and ruffled through some pages and finally jabbed her finger at a passage and sticking it in my face, she said, See, right here, it says, The three wise men came from afar. <laughs> I think you got it. <laughs> well, that humorous story illustrates the many, many misunderstandings of the wise men in the Bible. And today, we're going to focus our attention on the Sunday after Christmas on the wise men. Someone wrote this. The wise men are among the most beloved characters of Christmas, appearing annually at school programs, celebrated on the Feast of Epiphany, and in carols sung throughout the season. But how much do we really know about these mysterious wise men who sought the Christ child? It turns out we know very little, and much of what we do know is incorrect. So today, we're going to try to not only correct what the Bible teaches about the wise men, but also see what this story told to us only in the Gospel of Matthew teaches us that is relevant for us. In this story found in Matthew chapter 2 verses 1 to 12 we're going to meet three characters or groups of characters first of all we're going to meet a king this king's name is King Herod or Herod the Great his background is he is an Idumean that means he's an Edomite that means he's a relative of the Jewish people and of course if you know anything about the Bible he was called the king of the Jews that's King Herod. Secondly, we're going to meet um, the religious leaders of the Jewish people. And uh, they had a part in this story, and we're going to see how they responded to the birth of Jesus. And then thirdly, we're going to encounter the wise men. And we're going to see how they responded to the birth of Jesus. King Herod was furious. He when he heard that this baby, who was to be the king, the future king of the Jews, was born, he was incredibly filled with rage and hatred and antagonism. He wanted this baby dead, and we know about that. 
The religious leaders, on the other hand, they knew that, in fact, this child, this Messiah, this king was to be born. They knew where the king was to be born. And there was even messianic excitement in the air that the baby had been born. And they didn't do a single thing about it. They were completely apathetic and indifferent. And then we find the wise men. The wise men were Gentiles. Herod was kind of a, a partial Jew, if you will, and the Jewish leaders, of course, were all Jewish, but the wise men are Gentiles. They're not Jewish at all. They're probably Persians or Arabians. Certainly, they're Gentiles. And they're the ones who show the greatest interest by far in the birth of this baby. And so let's look at them one by one. But first, listen as I read this entire passage, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the child, the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. Well, the first person we encounter in this text of Scripture is the wicked genius Herod the Great, because he was the king who was in power when Jesus was born. Now, the Bible says that after Jesus was born. Now, when we typically think of the manger scene as we have over here, you see Jesus and the baby in the manger, and then on one of the sides, here come the wise men and their camels. And that is not what happened. In fact, the Bible tells us this is not what happened. This is sometime after Jesus was born. So what apparently happened is Mary and Joseph made their way from Nazareth down to Bethlehem, where Jesus was born, and they stayed there for a time. Because did you notice what I read? When the wise men found Jesus, he was in a house. He was no longer in some kind of stable or in a manger. He was now in a house. They stayed in Bethlehem, perhaps with relatives, because remember, their families were originally from that area. They stayed there for a while. So sometime after Jesus was born, Bethlehem. The town of Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem. You could easily walk there in two hours. Walk. It's a very, very close distance. 
and most people may not know that. But then we find it says that magi from the east. Magi simply, um, we're going to come to it a bit later, but uh, from the east means they were somewhere east of Israel, which could you put you in Arabia, but more likely in Persia. That's the, the traditional understanding of the Magi is they came from Persia, which is present day Iran. That's where they came from. And uh, they were people who were experts in understanding the, the, the dreams and looking at the stars. They were known to be wise counselors. They were not kings, even though my tie simply places them as kings with crowns. They were not kings, but they were probably king makers or king advisors, advisors to the kings. But they were not themselves kings at all. And when we say we three kings of Orient are, um, there probably weren't three. We think of three because there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But if these very, very distinguished people traveled hundreds of miles, perhaps, from Persia all the way to Israel, they did not come as three people. They probably were there as hundreds of people because people like this traveled with very large entourages of people to take care of them, to feed their animals, and to provide all of their needs over a very long uh, trip, which would have taken, at the short end, 40 days and perhaps as much as two months to make this trip from Persia to, to Israel. But let's come now to this man named, um, named Herod. Here's verse 7. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, of course, uh, King Herod is into um, manipulation mode times 10. He is feigning sincere interest in this baby when in fact he has every desire to kill this baby. In fact, he is a very, very accomplished killer. Do you know who he killed? He killed his wife. He killed his three sons. He killed his mother-in-law. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his uncle. He killed many other people, not to mention the babies in Bethlehem. And knowing how much people hated him, when he was dying in Jericho, that's where he died, he ordered his soldiers to imprison many of the Jewish leaders and on his death to kill them all so that when Herod died, someone would cry. That's how evil this man was. They did not carry out his order, thankfully. But that's what he had decreed, because he knew how deeply hated he was, having killed his whole family. No one would cry about him. They would all have a big party. So he wanted people to cry. That's why he, he prescribed the death of other people. This is the man that we're dealing with. He was an evil man. He was a descendant of Esau. He's an Idumean or an Edomite. So he has partly uh, uh, Jewish roots. He, was, he became king because he bought the kingship from the Roman government, which, uh, who he was under. And um, he was under Caesar Augustus. He bought his, his kingship from the, the Caesars in Rome. 
And uh, then he ruled from the year 37 B.C. to 4 B.C. when he died. He was an evil man, but he also was one of the greatest builders in human history. He's certainly among the five greatest builders that have ever existed in human history. He built theaters, cities, palaces, fortresses. He built a palace at Jericho. He built a fortress, which today is unbelievable, in Bethlehem called the Herodian. He built a mountain that looks like a, a, a volcano and put his city inside the mouth of it to protect him. In fact, they just found, not many years ago, his, his, um, his tomb. They found it. It had been robbed, but they found his tomb right there in Bethlehem. That's where he was, he was buried. He built the, um, a, a, another place called Macarius. That's where John the Baptist was imprisoned. He built Sebastia. That's a, a place that he re restored where Omri, the kings of the northern kingdom, had their capital. He built Caesarea by the sea to this day, an incredible place with a theater he built, still used for concerts today, 2,000 years later. He built Masada, if you know anything about Masada, an incredible place. He built um, the great temple in Jerusalem and many, many other structures around the Roman world he financed. He is one of, if not perhaps, the greatest builder in human history that we know of. Unbelievable buildings he left for us, many of them still here today, 2,000 years later. He was an evil, evil genius. Now Herod, being the king of the Jews, knew a lot about the coming Messiah. He knew Jewish beliefs and customs. He was in, in touch with priests and scribes. He knew what they knew from the Old Testament scriptures. He listened to the Magi and took them seriously. He had a conscience, well, not a very good one, but he had a conscience that showed him what was right and wrong. And he had a general knowledge of Jewish history and culture because of his background. He knew a lot about the coming of the Messiah. And yet when he heard that this Messiah had been born, he was furious because he recognized his job was in jeopardy. This family dynasty, which he then passed on to his children and went on for about the next 100 years, was in jeopardy. And he did not want somebody else to take his family's place. He was arrogant, he was egotistical, he was power hungry, he was self-serving, he was self-centered, he was selfish, and he had an extremely hungry, empty, and delicate ego. So what did he do? He all, first of all, he gathered relevant information. He secretly obtained secret information from the Magi. He tried to manipulate the Magi and he feigned interest in the birth of this baby. He asked the Magi to report back to him, but when they did not, he was furious, and with his fury, he killed the babies of Bethlehem. How many? We don't know. Most scholars think that the number of children in that range that he would have killed was somewhere between 10 and 30, not hundreds or thousands. 10 to 30, but that's still a lot of babies. So, here's a formula. Some knowledge of truth, God's truth, plus an empty, arrogant, egotistical heart 
equals a manipulative, self-serving, cold, calculating, and cruel human being. Now, why would someone be antagonistic toward Jesus? Um, I don't know if, if any of you, I'm, I'm one of those that have been watching The Chosen. Some of you may be watching that, and the, it, it depicts Jesus as just an incredibly wonderful person. Of course, he's straightforward, but he's incredibly loving. And you wonder to yourself, why would anyone be antagonistic toward Jesus, of all people? Well, the Bible tells us several reasons. This is what Pilate, Pilate, who was responsible for the killing of Jesus, Pilate says, Pilate knew it was out of envy that they handed Jesus over to him to be killed. So envy can cause you to be antagonistic toward Jesus. If you're an adherence to another religion, as the Jewish religious leaders were, they were very antagonistic to Jesus. If you advise people of a different route to salvation, you would be very antagonistic toward Jesus. If you're motivated by hatred, in fact, Jesus himself said, they will hate me because they will not want their sin exposed. When you have your sin exposed, you can either fall on your knees and say, I'm sorry, God, or you can try to get back at the one who exposed you and hate them. In fact, Jesus said this, they hated me without cause. This week I went online and I, 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 I typed in antagonism, and I came up with a, a Psychology Today article, and it was entitled the following, Seven Traits of Highly Antagonistic People. Listen to these in light of Herod. One, callousness, showing little concern for the feelings or problems of others. Two, hostility, recurring feelings of anger and irritability, especially in response to minor slights and insults. Three, manipulativeness, trickiness in one's behavior, typically meant to influence, control, or charm others. Let me come and worship him too. Rather manipulative. Number four, deceitfulness, dishonesty, embellishment, or fraudulence. Five, attention-seeking, engaging in behaviors designed to make oneself the focus. Six, grandiosity, believing that one is superior to others and deserves special treatment. And seven, suspiciousness, oversensitivity to interpersonal ill intent or harm. There's an article written 2,000 years later that perfectly depicts this man named Herod. By the way, there are a number of people whose names I'm going to just tell you now that you know them all well, who were highly antagonistic toward Jesus. However, they knew quite a bit about him. Here it goes. Charles Darwin, the father of evolution, did you know that he abandoned his medical studies at the University of Edinburgh and transferred to Cambridge to study for the ministry? The only degree that Darwin ever held is in religion. Friedrich Nietzsche, the greatest German philosopher who came up with the idea known as God is dead. His father was a pastor and Nietzsche studied theology, hoping to become a minister. Joseph Stalin, 
the communist butcher. He sang in a church choir and went to seminary to become a priest. Adolf Hitler sang in a church choir and considered becoming a priest. Richard Dawkins, probably the best known atheist today, had a normal Anglican upbringing and was confirmed at age 13. You see, all of these people, these are not your people who know nothing about God. These are some of the world's most evil people. And all of them knew quite a bit about God, but were incredibly antagonistic toward Him. On the other hand, let me give you the names of several people who did not study for the ministry. They, in fact, hated God. All of these people are atheists or agnostics, or were. Nicky Gumbel. I don't know if you've heard of the Alpha Course, used in many, many Anglican church to introduce people to Jesus. He was an atheist. C.S. Lewis, Oxford professor and atheist, became known as the most reluctant convert in all of England. Malcolm Muggeridge, British journalist, author, agnostic, a convert to Catholicism. Marvin Alasky, how many of you read World Magazine? He's the editor of it. He was a Marxist who became a Christian. Lee Strobel, the journalist, was an avowed atheist and a journalist, and in his journalistic research, attended to test, the, to show the, the, the falseness of the Bible, became an ardent Christian. Frank Morrison, he was a journalist as well, who tried to, he knew that the centerpiece of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. He set out to disprove the resurrection of Jesus, and in fact, ended up becoming a staunch believer and wrote, Who Moved the Stone? Josh McDowell, one of the best-known apologists of our day today, was himself also an agnostic. And one of my favorites, Nabil Qureshi, a very, very strong Muslim who was converted to Jesus Christ over a period of time and wrote, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. Oh, God knows how to get through to antagonistic people, but more knowledge is not necessarily the key. Here you had all of these people whose names I, I, I mentioned to you who had a background in Christianity, who became some of the most hardened people against Christ. Herod was like that. He knew a lot about the Old Testament. But because of various things, his heart condition, he became one of the most hate-filled people, certainly toward the Christ child. But now we move on to another one. This group is the religious leaders. And what, how they responded to the birth of Jesus Christ is unbelievably horrifying. Listen to what the Bible says, verse 4. When Herod had called together all the peoples, listen again, let me say it again. When Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them, Where's the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied. For this is what the prophet has written. 
But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So now you've got all the chief priests. That's the chief priests are Sadducees, and the teachers of the people, they are Pharisees. All of the leaders, probably the Sanhedrin, all of them are called by Herod and said, okay, where's the Messiah to be born? And in unison, they say, well, come on, that's a duh question. There's not a single Jew in the world that doesn't know where he's going to be born. Bethlehem, six miles down the road. Now, can you imagine? Can you imagine if at the University of Denver, I don't know how many miles down the road that is, but let's say it's six. At the University of Denver, you have the, one of the, the most advanced mathematical departments in the whole world. The greatest professors in the whole world in math are six miles down the road at the University of Denver. And at an elementary school in Wheat Ridge, right across the street, at an elementary school in Wheat Ridge, they've been doing testing. And in their testing, they came across a child, a little boy, eight years old, who has the highest IQ in math on record among all human beings. And not one person from the University of Denver ever comes to Wheatridge to meet that little boy. Can you imagine? Can you imagine any world in which that could possibly happen? How in the world could you be a mathematical PhD and somebody who puts your skill as a child way smarter than you eight years old is just down the road and you sit in your little easy chair and you go to your blackboard and you write your formulas and the person a hundred times smarter than you is six miles down the road and you never ever go check him out can you imagine that level of indifference can you imagine that level of apathy? That's what you had. These people had extensive, intensive, accurate, prophetic, inerrant, supernatural knowledge about the Lord Jesus Christ's coming. And what did they do with it? Nothing. But that's not all. In the first century, you have two, in, two great Roman historians, Suetonius and Tacitus. And both of them wrote that at the time of the birth of Jesus, there was a sense all over the known world, that's the Roman world at the time, that in Judea, the Messiah was born. That didn't, just, that didn't, come, that didn't come from their scriptures. That came from two pagan historians. They, were, they recounted in both of their writings, Tacitus and Suetonius, something was going on in the air. People everywhere knew that this Messiah was being born, and the Jewish leaders, they knew where he was to be born. Did nothing. Not even one person, to our knowledge, made a beeline to, 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 to Bethlehem. What did they do? Every single one of them simply went back to the business of religion and living their lives as normal. Elie Wiesel, 
He's a Nobel Prize winner. He was, a, a, he was in Auschwitz. He wrote this. The opposite of love is not hate. It's indifference. The opposite of art is not ugliness. It's indifference. The opposite of faith is not heresy. It's indifference. And the opposite of life is not death. It's indifference. Remember what Paul wrote? He's writing to the Corinthian believers and he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. When you have a lot of knowledge of God's Word and you do absolutely nothing with it, it does bad things to your heart. These are the words of Jesus in the book of Revelation. He says, I know what you're like, speaking to the church of Laodicea. You're neither hot nor cold. You're just lukewarm. This is Martin Niemöller. He wrote this during the Holocaust. First they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I wasn't a trade unionist. And then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Indifference. This is Dante, the great writer. The hottest places in hell are reserved for those who remain neutral in a time of great moral crisis. The great evil is not hot or cold, it's indifference. This is George Bernard Shaw. The worst sin towards our fellow creatures is not to hate them, but to be indifferent to them. That is the essence of inhumanity. The great crimes of our world, the great crimes of us individually, are not things we do wrong, but the right things we should have done that we have never done. We're so superficial in our description, our understanding of sin. We go through an hour and say, yeah, I don't think I had any bad, bad thoughts. I must be a pretty good person. What kind of baloney is that? But you see, for God, perfection means not only do we not do wrong things, but every single thought of our minds, every single action is the right thing at the right time, in the right way, with the right attitude. The worst thing you could ever do is just to be ah, indifferent. The religious leaders were indifferent. And you might say that's even worse than what King Herod did, trying to kill Jesus. They said, ah, just going with business. Religion's a good business. It's keeping us, it's paying the bills. It's kind of a nice job. People like us think we're great. They never went to search out the baby. And remember what happens later. At 12 years old, this little baby is, 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 is confounding the smartest people in the whole society. At 30 years old, John the Baptist is saying, this guy's the Messiah. And this John the Baptist was really some kind of character. The first prophet for 400 years. And then the guy's performing miracles, healing blind people, raising dead people out of the ground. And they decide, we've got to kill this guy, and we've got to kill the ones who he's raising from the dead to get rid of the evidence. That's, that's what religion can do to your soul. Antagonism, apathy, and then worship. Here come the wise men. Now, by the way, 
They're not necessarily three wise men. They're just three gifts. They were not from the Orient, which means China. Probably they were probably from Persia or Arabia. They were not kings. They were not named Gaspar, Melchior, and Belshazzar. They did not smoke rubber cigars, by the way. Any of you remember that? We three kings of Orient are smoking on a rubber cigar. We used to sing that all the time as children. And uh, someone wrote this. There couldn't have been more than five wise men because the scripture says they all came in one accord and that particular Honda model only seats five. So there cannot be more than five of, of, the, of them because of the Hondas. But here's what the Bible says. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Then verse 7, Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. Verse 9, After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. But what did they do? These are, these are people who watch the stars. These are people who are wise. These are people who want to know the truth. And since they're from Persia, who lived in Persia? Daniel, Esther, Ezra. They were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. Probably a lot of familiarity they had. And probably around that time, around 500 BC, is when Zoroastrianism began. They were probably Zoroastrians, which believed in, 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 in one God. So they had some sense of a God. They knew some from the Old Testament scriptures. They, they looked at the stars and they saw this strange star. People have tried to figure out what it is. Is it a comet or is it an alignment of the planets? And it seems the best explanation is because it moved and it went right over the house where Jesus was living. I don't know any star that can do that. It was probably the Shekinah glory of God. Like in the Old Testament where the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud led God's people through the wilderness for 40 years. Probably something like that, something special. But they were tuned in enough, they gave attention to it, and they decided to take this long journey, very, very costly, to try to find this king that was born. And they came, of course, to the people who should know. This is, after all, a king of Judah. They went to the religious leaders. They went to the king. They got the information they could, and the star led them to the house. And when they got to the house, they came inside, and there was a mother and a father and a small child and they worshiped the child this is the one and they gave them the gifts gold frankincense and myrrh of course the frankincense was used as incense in the temple and myrrh was used for embalming and gold of course is used for money and probably this gold is what financed their trip to Egypt because you remember they had to run for their lives and this probably provided the money they were incredible from, from the heavens, they, they understood the glory of God and, and from creation, God's eternal power and divine nature. And from the conscience, they knew right from wrong. And from 
they, from their revelation, even from their own religion, Zoroastrianism, and from what they knew of the Jewish religion, they knew there was one true God that should be worshipped. And from the scuttlebutt on the street, there was messianic fever in the air. And from the Old Testament scriptures, they knew this Messiah was to be born among Jewish people. And they followed the star, and they were duly rewarded. When they saw the child, the Bible says they were overjoyed and they gave gifts. By the way, in Bethlehem, there's a church known as the Church of Nativity. It's the traditional site where Jesus was born. The church there was first built under the reign of King Constantine in around 325 A.D., 300 years after the birth of Jesus. They built a church there, and then Justinian the Great, in the 500s, he expanded it into this magnificent edifice there to honor the birthplace of Jesus. In the year 614, the Persian people came into the Holy Land and took control of the whole Holy Land from the people called the Byzantines, the former Roman Empire. And they destroyed all of the churches, all of them, including the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which identified the site of Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection. They had destroyed all the churches, and they came to the Church of the Nativity. They came into the church to destroy it. They looked on the wall, and there was a picture of, in mosaic of the wise men dressed in Persian clothes and they did not destroy it because they said oh, this is us that's us they destroyed every other church except the church of the nativity because they identified themselves with the persians that were in the mosaics on the wall of the church well what's the point so what we start a brand new year this day we have choices every single day how are we going to live our lives? Because you've been here today, you have some knowledge of the Scripture. Because you have a, a copy of the Bible in your hands, you have some knowledge of the Scripture. You can turn on any, almost any day at any time, you can turn on the radio or the TV. You can get some knowledge of the Scripture. That's not the key. The key is if you take that knowledge of Scripture and come, what happened, what goes on in your heart? You can take that knowledge of Scripture and combine it with an evil heart and you become an antagonist against Jesus. If you don't want your sin exposed, don't come to Jesus. If you, if you don't believe in, in, in what the Bible says, don't come to Jesus. You can become an antagonist against Jesus. But perhaps worse is to take an increasing amount of Bible knowledge and do nothing with it. Just indifference, apathy, yeah, just go on with life as it is. That is a very dangerous path to take because that's the path that was taken by the people who eventually killed our Lord Jesus. There's another route. This is the route of the wise men. People who didn't know that much. They were not the, the, the main recipients of, of, the, of, of, the, of the Old Testament. But when they, they followed whatever light God gave them. And when they saw that this all led to Jesus, they were overjoyed and they lived lives of worship. And I suspect, I suspect 
One day we'll see these wise men, probably not with crowns any more than we have crowns, in heaven because they sought out and found their Savior. For there is salvation in no one else. For there's only one name given among human beings by which we are saved. Only one. There's only one way to heaven. And that's through Jesus. You can choose the path of antagonism, the path of apathy, or the path of adoration and worship. And if we choose that latter path, which I trust every one of us in this place will do, it brings us to a table. Now this is a brand new year, and as we celebrate communion in conclusion today, I was thinking through the, 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 the Bible passages on communion. Listen to the words from Luke chapter 22. Jesus said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. He said, what we're about to do is something new. It's a new covenant. And then he said this in the book of Mark. I tell you the truth. I will not drink again from the fruit of vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. This is a new year. Jesus said what we're about to do is to celebrate a new covenant. A new agreement between God and us as human beings. An agreement that has been written in Jesus' blood, the blood that he poured out for us on that cross. A new agreement, and here's the agreement. If you will understand that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and you recognize there's no way to buy your salvation, no way to undo your sin, the only thing we can do is to fall on our knees and accept the mercy and grace of a Savior who died to pay the penalty for all our sin. If you have received Jesus Christ as your Savior, then what we're about to do is to remember what He did for us and to propel us forward in a new year to live in light of this new covenant. And so, may I ask you elders to come forward? And as you do, let's pray and give thanks as we remember today a new covenant written in the blood of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for new things, a new year, a new life, a new chance. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Thank you for the privilege of not having to carry around with us all our sin, for that weight is far too heavy. Thank you for having shoulders so wide that you could carry all our sin on that cross so that we could be free and you could be glorified forever. Help us now, Holy Spirit, to understand afresh and to recognize and to just revel in what Jesus has done for us on the cross. So we pray in his name. Amen. Just quietly reflect now this morning as we receive these elements.
on that solemn day, just before he was crucified, within hours of his own death, Jesus met with his disciples and he took some bread. He said, now this takes on new meaning. As often as you eat this together, I want you to remember what I've done for you. Let's partake together. Once again, at that meal, Jesus took a cup. He said, now this, this cup's going to take on new significance. Of course, it looks like the color of blood, and that's very significant because he said, now this is a new covenant I'm making with you. It's going to be paid for by my own blood, my life. I give my life for this. Who gives his life? God. God gave his life to forgive us our sins. Often as you drink it, he said, remember me, Let's remember Jesus. Well, it didn't end there. The Bible tells us that after they had had that supper together, they sang a hymn. And we're going to sing a song. And then they went out. To what? They went out to betrayal, out to denial, out to abandonment out to Gethsemane, out to a mock trial, out to crucifixion, 
out to resurrection, raised from the dead, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's stand together as we sing in conclusion.